it almost feels like the government's playing chicken with the business sector because the government is saying, no, we're not going to change. We're not going to introduce any policy measures to help you deal with your energy costs, deal with your increased fertilizer prices, deal with your wage inflation. The market will sort it out. The problem is, and I, again, I speak now as an apple grower, is if all of these things are being exacerbated in the UK, which will make me the most expensive, make the UK the most expensive place to grow apples in the world, my market will sort that out. And actually my market will choose to import instead because it's cheaper. And that way they can keep food prices lower. So when I say the government's playing chicken with business, it feels to me at the moment like this government doesn't really mind whether the food that goes on British plates is grown here or not. And that is a very worrying place, I think, for an island economy to find itself. Hello and welcome to the Future Farm podcast. In this special feature series, we invite farmers to talk about the agriculture topics that matter. And for episode one, it's the supply chain. No subject is more important right now. What might be the impact of today's shortages and bottlenecks on this Christmas and next year's growing season? We bring you a panel of experts who are experiencing things firsthand. We will hear how it is affecting them and what it might mean for the future of the industry in the UK longer term. And it makes for some powerful listening. I'm Florian Ritzman, and this is the Future Farm Podcast. Before I kick off, let me introduce the panel. Today we have with us Ali Kapper, who is and does so many things that I'll struggle to keep it brief. Ali grows hops and apples on her Hertfordshire family farm. She's also a director of the British Hop Association. She's chairman of English Apples. You can tell I'm taking a lot of breaths here. And pairs and chairman of the National Farmers Union Horticulture and Potatoes Board. Add to that her record as a scholar and a corporate background in marketing, and you get one of the most distinguished spokespeople in British agriculture. Welcome, Ali. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't know you wanted an answer. Well, I'll just say Thank hi. You. Yes, hi, Ali. Also joining us today is Chris Hollingsworth, who farms arables in Suffolk and Hampshire. Chris has converted a portion of his land to regenerative no-till farming. So we're quite keen to hear his view on how bottlenecks might be affecting his operations. Hello to you, Chris. Hi, Florian. Hi. Nice to join you. Thank you. And last but not least, we have Robert Austin on the line. Robert farms wheat, barley and peas near Norwich. With a background in the city, Robert is used to weighing up financial risk. So we would like his view on the kind of decisions that he's facing right now. Hello, Robert. Morning, Florian. Thank you. Morning. And I am Florian Ritzman. I work for Future Farm and you may have guessed I'm neither British nor am I a farmer, nor am I, nor am I a regular podcast host, but I'll do my best. I help build digital marketplaces and trading platforms for a living, and that is what I do at Future Farm. So let's get back to the topic at hand. A few weeks ago, I received a newsletter from one of the large UK-based fertilizer distributor, and I'll just read out a quick portion of that to kick us off. The understanding of what was possible in urea markets reached an altogether new level of incredulity last week as the outcome of the latest RCF Indian tender hit home needing to buy 1.5 million tonnes of urea, just over 700,000 tonnes was able to be secured. Very little product is on offer in the UK, 
If India can't source product, the UK will clearly struggle too. So with that at the outset, let me uh, turn the mic in Robert's direction and ask, how difficult are you finding it this year to buy or source fertilizer for your farm? Thanks, Brian. Uh, yeah, good question. The question that I think a lot of farmers are wrestling with at the moment and some people being forced in and out of decisions as we speak. And it, it's a real dilemma that we, we, we're basking some good commodity prices at the moment, but looking forward and with my financial hat on, we seem to be sort of struggling with the future going forward and next year, any of that additional margin has just been eroded completely potentially by increased fertilizer prices. To answer your question though, long and short of it is at the moment as a liquid nitrogen fertilizer user uh, on arable farming, I'm being told, yes, we can, we have your committed tonnage. We have sourced product for you. Slight problem is we just can't tell you how much it's going to cost yet. <laughs> so you, you find yourself in this dilemma where, as we speak, we have a drill putting seed in the ground. Um, we know the cost of that. We know we're going to have increases inflation of all costs across seed, fertilizer, chemical, energy. Everything is, is going up. We're enjoying, let's say, a commodity price on wheat of 180, 190, potentially now 200 pounds a ton. Last year, we were working on a, you know, a nitrogen price of, of, you know, what I bought in last year at to you know, 185 the crop I'm selling at the moment a ton, which basically gave me a cost of a couple hundred pounds a hectare. There was a margin at the moment selling wheat at those prices. My dilemma now is that where I'm being offered prices for now on, on liquid, which had a 30% increase already booked in. So, so just to take a step back, I mean, I, I'm offered liquid nitrogen prices in June when the first prices come out. I took advantage to fill my tanks up to the maximum I could. That was the early bird discount, supposedly. I had no idea where the market was going at that point. I had to pay £243 a tonne in June as opposed to 185 last year. So that's quite a substantial increase already. And I was sitting there thinking, well, by the time I fill the rest of my tanks up again in spring, which will need to be filled up another three times at least, yeah, it'll probably be high 200s, but... But I can live with that at wheat at sort of 180 pounds a ton plus, if that works. So the dilemma, as I get it, then, is that it was a decent harvest. You got a good price. But buying fertilizer now and probably a lot of other inputs might eat up that profit that you made. Yeah. With the additional margin that we would have earned this year, because the rise of prices is potentially now being eroded entirely and some by the fertilizer price. Because as you all know, you know, and everyone listening will have heard by, by the time this goes out, those prices, when I was talking for liquid at 243 back in June, um, that has at least doubled, if not tripled, you know, and, and bag prilled product, we're hearing of six, seven hundred pounds a tonne plus in the market, if it's available. Okay. And those are the farmers, traditionally last year would have paid in the 200s. So the dilemma is you're looking at something that has tripled today as the market stands. And our, our Sales price of commodities says, yes, we've had a better year. There's a bit of a commodity cycle going on at the moment. They perhaps had a 20, 30% increase, which is great. But obviously that doesn't cover a three-time increase of fertilizer input. So what I'm trying to get my head around at the moment is what's the cost benefit of this? The additional, if I go and, and pay double, triple the fertilizer price, what okay. margin have I got? Even if I assume a good, let's say, 10 tonne a hectare crop of wheat at 180 or 200 pounds, at that fertilizer price, the margin there is back to where it was a couple of years ago at break even or less. And that de depends entirely on a good yield. 
depends on, and that's in the hands of the, of the gods with the weather. Thank you for that. We'll get back to what the potential impact of the decision might be on you and on food consumers. But before we do that, let's let's talk to Chris. Chris, you're you're into regenerative farming, so I'm just gonna posit a, a very ignorant statement, which is, as a regenerative farmer, you don't need any fertilizer. You should be fine. True or false? Um, well, not strictly true, Florian. Certainly, uh, soil health and improving soil health is the key to reducing your fertilizer inputs. The more healthy your soil is the more um, nitrogen-fixing soil bacteria you've got. And, and more, you, more the soil has the ability to, to mine the nutrients that are locked up in the soil that are unavailable to the plant directly through the root system and provide those nutrients to the plant. So if we are in the long term looking at reducing the cost of fertilizer inputs, then regenerative farming will do that. But it won't do it all in the first year. It's a long-term solution but one which will hopefully by improving your soil health will give you healthier plants and reduced inputs and remember it will also reduce your cost of production because if you don't spend so much time and money cultivating and working your soils then you've got cost savings there as well but you still need to buy fertilizer so how have you been doing this year i'm in the same boat the same dilemma that our robert is I took advantage early on of some of my fertilizer and in doing so I know that some of my fertilizer having been bought early has been bought at the right price but we're, we're still in the same situation as most other farmers in that scenario. I think a couple of things here which you know fertilizer losses in the soil are, are quite large only something like uh, 50 60 percent of the fertilizer that we actually put on lands up being used by the plant. So there's a, there's a question. The rest of it lands up in the watercourses and being lost. So you're suggesting that farmers might somehow also get away with putting on a little less? Uh, have we been over-fertilizing our fields? I, I think there'll be a lot of work this spring on timing of fertilizers, the using of foliar fertilizers late on, of spoon feeding the crop, of trying to yeah. improve the efficiency of the fertilizer usage bearing in mind the, addition, the the high cost of it, that will really come home. I agree with that, Chris. We, we, I'm already looking at, you know, I think, leaf testing on, on that we, exactly. we've never done enough of to know actually when does the crop need need it. And I was looking, you know, trying, trying to run the numbers on it. Rather, we've been doing three splits of nitrogen through the season in yeah. the past, sometimes two to sort of spread workload. And actually, could we make that five or six? It's a lot more work for the sprayer, but it means that we can do smaller more accurate applications perhaps at the right time. And the consumers might not like this, but of course the other thing which will happen is that if the cost of fertilizer is as high as it is and its availability is questionable, then there'll be less wheat planted in the world. And if there's less wheat planted, then that will hold the price of wheat up. Then more wheat is, is, is sown and drilled around the world, which increases um, supply. That's the key point that I think we'll be coming back to in, in, in a few minutes. Uh, before we do, Ali, what is your perspective on fertilizer and do you have enough of it? No, same as the others, actually. Um, so we use a lot of foliar feeds. We do a lot of and both soil analysis and leaf analysis later on in the season before we do anything. Um, we have some 
already bought, um, but we are facing having to make a decision to buy some now at prices which are almost three times what they were. And then I guess there's a we'll probably take a risk on um, buying some later on next year. So yeah, we face the same challenges as everybody else. So you're and you're probably in the same boat then as everybody else. Is you're hoping that this madness will somehow end uh, and there shall be sanity shall return and fertilizer will become available at economical prices? Yeah, I guess um, when you get volatility like this in a market, um, one always just needs to sit back and see what's going to happen. Clearly, um, things could get worse as easy as they could get better. But one would hope that strategically across the world, the policy levers that can be used will be used um, sometimes it takes governments a little while to catch up with what market forces are doing but one would hope that common sense will prevail when it comes to global food production you're not an arable farmer uh, like robert and chris um, are there any other input prices that are worrying you at this particular time ali <laughs> there seem to be problems everywhere florian um Forty uh, percent of our turnover is labour cost, and wages are inflating beyond all recognition at the moment due to the shortages. Um, not just of seasonal labour anymore, but there is there we now have the highest vacancy rate in the UK since records began, and we have some of the lowest unemployment levels across the country and especially in our rural areas and we are seeing whether you talk about haulage or logistics whether you're talking about pack house labour or on-farm labour it's all inflating um, and it clearly is starting to give the Bank of England um, some cause for concern now at last so quite where that's going to fall I'm not sure Florian but there are other I mean we are we're growing apples and obviously our price is depend on a packed product and everything's inflating. Cardboard is inflated by about 40% in the last six months. Packaging has gone up by two lots of 10%. And then there are any capital infrastructure projects. Um, and I would include in this sort of new build, because of course, when we're looking for productivity gain, it often comes with some sort of capital infrastructure in order to get um, better automation into a system and of course all construction costs have inflated I mean even things like building insulation has gone up by 100% and often when these costs go up they don't come back down uh, so um, certainly I, I'm sure we won't be alone we, we're putting some capital infrastructure capex projects on hold at the moment trying to just wait for things to come back a bit but yes everywhere I look at the moment there seems to be significant double digit inflation. And the kind of inflation that a year ago you you simply wouldn't have expected something like this. This is out of the blue. If I go back just six months, Florian, my sector was very, very concerned that over a five-year period, we'd seen 34% growth in wages compared to the previous five years when it had been about 10%. Um, right now, the haulage industry is seeing a 50% increase in wages in just six months. And some of this is just... Um, well, it's very, very volatile. And should we have seen it coming? There was always going to be a Brexit effect. Um, but of course, what we've got layered on top of that now is a COVID economic recovery effect. And then you've got, um, I would say, some, some interesting UK policy challenges around what the government is trying to do with its high wage, high skilled economy. So you've got sort of different layers of problems that are creating a 
creating what we're now seeing in terms of unprecedented inflation. Okay, um, and all on the shoulders of farmers from the sounds of it, who we depend on quite a lot to feed us. So taking a, a just a small step back, I'm putting us uh, back in talking about fertilizer. So there's a correlation between fertilizer and the quantity of wheat grown. I think we've established that. But what about the quality? Um, is And this is, again, me asking as a non-farmer, if you put less fertilizer out there, do you get a lower grade wheat as a result? And I guess I should point that uh, to, for Rob, to Robert in the first instance. Yeah, there's two parts to that. Yes, yes, of course you do. Um, the protein content of the grain and the starch through that will flow from the nitrogen and therefore those growing milling wheat and it, because I mean, wheat has multiple uses be it animal feed through to milling and different grades and quantities that you use for bread and ingredients etc and different parts of the, of the country due to weather and land type will specialize in growing different types of wheat for certain markets and therefore they want a nitrogen application to, to get that protein level in the grain myself sitting at, over here in the far east of east anglia you know near the coast we, 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 we grow barn fillers, we grow feed wheat for animal feed. So I don't necessarily need a high protein grade wheat, um, but I need weight in it. Um, but the issue within not just the quality of the grain, but nitrogen is, is getting the actual yield itself. And if you looked at saying, okay, let's not put any nitrogen on at all, let's just rely on you know, what's there and inherent and no artificial fertilizer, my yield will definitely half potentially be a third of what it is now and that is uneconomic completely but that's that's significantly lost making. and so going back to chris's earlier point what is the effect of you know less wheat being grown on consumer prices and you you please state the obvious but i mean are we looking at a price explosion for um for food products that we're not talking about enough right now is that, a, is that potentially a risk, Chris? Yeah, uh, I, I think it is, yes. I'm interested in going back to Robert's viewpoint there about the fact he grows feed wheat rather than the milling wheat. The, the reason he does that is because the premium we get in the UK for growing a milling wheat isn't worth the risks attached to growing the milling wheat. Because as the farmer, you take the risk as to whether you can achieve the standards that the mill the bread making mill requires and if you can't then it gets downgraded to feed so you'll have spent all that money without getting the return if the premium is big enough then it's worth taking the risk so yes against that of course we have imported um, the mills can always import wheat from abroad and bring that in albeit that that doesn't always have the same crop assurance standards and uh and care that we take about growing it and which we need to to cover our farm assurance schemes to make certain that what we're producing is healthy and uh, uh, for, for the consumer. So well, that's one of the big questions really I think is as to why we aren't growing um, milling wheat so much in this country, more feed wheats. As far as the consumer is concerned, yes, definitely. I mean, Alice already mentioned the fresh produce world, which is where the over 50% of the cost of production is labor. Um, and if the labor rates going up, are going up, then they're going to need more money in order to, in order to grow those crops. And Ali, you, you obviously are um, very well connected um, all over, uh, including government. Um, is this, are we, 
I feel like we're talking a lot about saving Christmas. That seems to be the slogan right now, saving Christmas, making sure we've got our turkeys. But what about next Christmas? Um, is, is the government in any way, as far as you know, um, thinking about the effects and how to mitigate the effects of, um, well, let's not call it shortages just yet, but um, an above inflation uh, increase in, in, in food prices. Um, I think, in all honesty, I think Christmas is a bit of a distraction, and I hope the government's recruitment of Dave Lewis, the ex-chief um, executive of Tesco, to save Christmas will go beyond it and into next year, because I think this reacting to the immediate problem, which seems to have become the way in which the government is approaching things, is just not good enough. The shortage of labour in um, many of the business sectors now means that people are starting to take different very different decisions about the long term i know growers who are going to mothball glass houses that should be growing tomatoes and cucumbers and peppers next year i know growers who are not going to plant the crop that will require it to be picked next year because they can't take the risk on not getting the labor i know of a business that has put 300 tons of daffodil bulbs into landfill because they have no confidence that the labor will be there to pick it in January and February. So is it just a Christmas problem? No, it's not. And it's not simply about labour either, although I think in our sector that's the the main driving force. But I think these inflationary pressures, um, which seem to be exacerbated in the UK, if we, um, which I'm sure you'll make us in a minute, Florian, switch to the energy costs that are inflating again, in a very volatile fashion. And they are doing so across Europe, but it's worse here. Labour is short across Europe, but it's worse here. So we seem to have an exemplary position when it comes to all of these problems, which means we need some um, serious long-term strategic thinking to fix some of these issues, as well as the short-term reaction. So uh, is it about this Christmas or next Christmas or Christmas 2023? It's about all three of them, Florian. It sounds to me then what we're facing right now could be, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to be alarmist, but the beginning of a more structural problem or are we surfacing a structural problem here and not something that could be solved short term? Um, So in other words, how confident are you that fertilizer prices in March or April will be back at an affordable level? I guess I should ask you, Ali. Um, I'm not actually, no. Um, It will take, um, what's driving fertilizer cost, especially in the UK, is energy costs, and those are high across Europe. Um, It will take a major structural change in energy supply to bring energy costs down and adjust downwards the fertiliser cost. There was some talk that Russia may be using this to get Europe to sign a deal on their new pipeline. Um, It does sound like that would fix it. Um, it's way above my pay grade, this stuff, Florian. Mm. Um, but it seems to me that we need a big structural change in energy supply and therefore reduction in cost to change the fertiliser cost. And um, that means that governments are going to have to work together to deliver that. You say um, above my pay grade. And for me, that's perhaps one of the conclusions of this call. Um, it seems like this problem is a bit above anyone's pay grade in that 
there are so many moving parts to this issue. Um, we just touched on fertilizer to kind of expose it, but there are clearly other things, there energy prices, uh, uh, labor, we spoke about it. And it does feel that we're simply at the beginning of a process that will require some kind of concerted effort. Uh, I hate to say it by government, because right now to me, uh, as a non-farmer, it feels like a lot of these problems are being laid at your doorstep. Uh, it sounds like we're asking you to, to we, as in um, society or, or people at, at large, uh, are asking you farmers to help us with food security, but we're not really giving you the tools or the, the prices, I guess, in which you could achieve that. So therefore, let's say you're, you know all our efforts at targeting the fertilizer and making it last as long as it can don't work out or they're not as effective as they were last year, the impact on grain, on, on wheat prices, if less is produced, prices should go up. So therefore, isn't there somewhat a perverse incentive on farmers to almost say, you know what, um, the risk on us as farmers, as businessmen or businesswomen is not as great as it is on the consumer, because if we don't grow as much, we'll still get more for it. Those are the laws of the market. Um, now, I'm saying it in a way that is deliberately somewhat controversial, um, but is is that a consideration going going through your head, Robert? I think certainly I have to go looking at my own business, my own farm. I have to look at the risk reward for growing the crop. And now you know, as a farmer, you're you're locked into a long term investment cycle in farming. It is a significantly long term business. The machines um, for myself are bought on a seven eight year cycle. My cropping rotation is a one year and six. You, know, you can't make quick decisions and change. Um, direction that quickly, unfortunately. So when it comes to making this and looking looking at what what the impact of all that is, uh, I, I find myself a little bit caught because I've got cost inflation, which inflation coming through a significant amount by cost reduction. I've got little place to turn on rotation and also such a long term cycle. I'm being asked to take all the production risk, all the operational risk in the field we're delivering it, plus the weather risk and all the things outside of my control to get a crop to a marketable state and then sell that at a level that will cover huge cost inflation increases. And, and at the moment, the commodity cycle is there to support it, but only just, and it's got to continue to stay up to really keep this going. Obviously, we'll normally tell you in the long run that that, that isn't sustainable. So if something has to give here. Farmers will vote with their feet to a certain extent um, and have to change the business, but, it, but, it, but it's such a long-term cycle that isn't always possible. So you, you, you really wrestle with this dilemma and it's one of the worst dilemmas that in my sort of 20 year farming career that I've, I've seen at the moment as to how do we make this pay? How do we make it work? Mm -hmm. Not just in uh, keeping the business going, but also the um, operational, the environmental, the sustainability concerns that we all want to address along with that. Chris, what's your view on this? Is a, a little bit less, higher prices, we could deal with that? I think um, I think Robert explained it rather well when he's, he said all the farms are sitting, sitting or, or while they're driving up and down their fields, looking at the risk reward. The risk reward, it has got to be right in agriculture in order to get long-term investment to um, provide, you know, a secure source of food for the UK um, and everything else that goes with it. And, um, you know, as we look just down the road, we've got farm 
area payments re reducing and eventually stopping completely. And the risk reward figures keep changing. So it's going to be a very, very difficult time. I mean, the only there's very little we can do about commodity prices. They're a worldwide issue. There's very little we can do about this fertilizer price, as Ali and Robert have mentioned, and uh, of the energy cost. So I suppose the only place we can really look is to lower our costs of production. And um, that is something which, which, uh, which we feel we're doing through regenerative farming. I see. Um, cutting our production costs to try and keep the risk reward ratio right for our business. Right. That makes sense. Ali, I think there's an open goal here for you. Um, we're talking about the long-termism that you need in agriculture. Uh, and I think we've already contrasted that with a somewhat short-termist approach, which I think is best encapsulated in the fact that, you know, when CF, the big um, uh, manufacturer of, of, um, of fertilizer, shut down its operations in two plants uh, in, in England in September, the government stepped in in order to subsidize the production of um, what is essentially a byproduct, but not the production of fertilizer. So that, I think, for me, is the definition of short-termism. So are we, is there a mismatch here between the long-term needs of you know, risk-reward um, and agriculture? We're talking about you know, growing organic matter that cannot be done. Uh, you know, on, on a, that is just not something that can be done unless you're thinking long-term. Is there a real mismatch here between um, what our government is doing and what, what farmers need? Um, yes, Florian, I think there is a mismatch, but I think the mismatch is also um, between farmers and their market. So sitting here as the orchardist, um, who is, it takes two years to order trees, it takes five to six years to get them into full production, and your life cycle therefore for from initial concept of this is the variety I want to grow to being ready to take that variety out and plant the next one is anywhere between 15 and 20 years. So it's very long term what we do. Businesses are serving their retailer directly or, or through a pack house. And um, the negotiations with retail continue to be caught up in what is can only be described as an ongoing price war between the traditional retailers and the discounters. Um, many growers will tell you that price negotiations this year started with the word deflation. What retailers wanted was deflation in their prices. And that's a very untenable place to find yourself when you're facing double digit inflation and everything in your business. So we've got the price war in the market, which is making it very difficult to pass on prices to um, retail. What retail then choose to do with that in terms of increasing prices to the consumer or not is really up to them. But when we have retailers announcing 40% increases in their profits year on year, um, it feels like there may be a little bit more room for uh, their margin to protect the consumer and then you have a government which is taking a very actually I think um, quite a challenging approach to business at the moment um, it almost feels like the government's playing chicken with the business sector because the government is saying no we're not going to change we're not going to 
introduce any policy measures to help you deal with your energy costs, deal with your increased fertilizer prices, deal with your wage inflation, the market will sort it out. The problem is, and I, again, I speak now as an apple grower, is if all of these things are being exacerbated in the UK, which will make me the most expensive, make the UK the most expensive place to grow apples in the world, my market will sort that out. And actually my market will choose to import instead because it's cheaper and that way they can keep food prices lower. So when I say the government's playing chicken with business, it feels to me at the moment like this government doesn't really mind whether the food that goes on British plates is grown here or not. And that is a very worrying place, I think, for an island economy to find itself, um, especially after the disruption that we've seen in our supply chain in the last um, year or two, to move to a position where we import even more and where borders and border controls and logistics become even more important. And we've seen their fragility in the last couple of years. I think that's quite a dangerous place to take the UK um, because we know from other um, economies in the last couple of decades, you're only three days of empty shelves. Any nation only needs three days of empty shelves before you get civil disobedience. Okay. <laughs> On that happy note, um, I uh, hope that, uh, well, that's certainly been a lot of food for thought for me, no, no pun intended. Uh, and I think... Yeah, we've covered a really wide range of topics uh, and I think one thing is clear, which is that the future is not as certain as we'd like it to be. And um, well, by the next time we speak, hopefully some of these issues that we've touched on would have moved in one or the other way to perhaps discuss a little further. But I'd like to thank you all for your time. It's certainly been fascinating to me to hear your different opinions and the farmer's view really on all of this because I do feel that in this whole discussion on price inflation, we focus a little bit too much on how long it's taking for me to queue to fill up my car as opposed to um, yeah, what's actually going on beneath the surface here. So thank you very much once again for all your time. It's been fantastic uh, and I hope to speak to you again soon. Having listened to these experienced growers, I'm struck by the complexity of the decisions they need to take just for their own business. Robert got the point across quite well, I thought. Do I lock in now or later when I don't know what the weather will bring and what I'm going to get from my product? That is an extraordinarily difficult question in an year, and I would argue that other businesses outside agriculture have more visibility of the road ahead to make such a big decision. Another striking aspect of what I heard is the wider issue that affects us as food consumers. Put it this way, say I'm a steel buyer for a car factory and I'm buying for the year ahead. If I buy at the wrong price, then I might damage my company. I may even ruin it, but the fallout would be limited to my company and the people it employs. But getting it wrong as a farmer does affect us all, because as we heard, lower yields mean less food, mean higher prices. We are at risk of stumbling into a food crisis and those cannot be so easily remedied when in motion. I hope I'm wrong, time will tell. Now I hope you found the discussion engaging. Please visit futurefarm.ag for more information about what we do and to get in touch with us. Next time, we will be talking about carbon sequestration and the revenue opportunity it holds for farmers. Until then, stay well.